Hello, and welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am joined by my brilliant co-host, Daniel Erickson, as we try to make sense of the day's foreign policy headlines, the top being the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is now threatening to become a wider war in Eastern Europe. We will be talking to Ben Friedman, who is a policy director at Defense Priorities, in the second half of the show about how to keep this awful situation in Ukraine from boiling over into a new world war. But first, let's take it over to Vienna, where talks may be resuming on the renewal of the JCPOA, or the Iran nuclear deal. As you know, President Trump pulled the U.S. out of that deal in 2018, which not unpredictably has led to more uranium enrichment by Tehran than when the deal was fully enforced. Biden promised to reverse the trend and get us back into the JCPOA when he got uh, into office in 2020. The talks between Iran and the other remaining signatories, Russia, China, Germany, France, and the UK, have been slow and going with fits and starts and, frankly, a disappointing strategy from the Biden administration, which appears to be more interested in a longer and stronger agreement than just making a good faith effort to get back into the deal as it was when Trump tore it up. But apparently, they were almost there last week when the Russians pulled their own card, saying that they would not sign on to the new deal if they didn't have guarantees that they would be able to trade with Iran despite new sanctions on them over the Ukraine invasion. This put a huge potential monkey wrench into the deal. But according to news reports on Tuesday, the U.S. and Russia may have come to some agreement on that front. Dan, can you explain to us what is going on and where this puts the future of the JCPOA renewal? Uh, sure, Kelly, I'll, I'll try. It's a little hard <laughs> to know exactly where everybody is. Yeah. Uh, for, for one thing, the, the Russians are being very uh, weird in their messaging. Uh, at first, they were. it seemed like they were trying to use the JCPOA talks as a way to get a carve-out for themselves uh, to, to create a sort of a, an opening in the, the sanctions that have been imposed on them following the invasion. And so it seemed like they were just trying to use their participation in the talks as leverage against uh, the Ukraine sanctions. But but now it seems that they, they may be willing to come to some sort of understanding with the U.S. and Iran uh, so that provided that their part in the JCPOA implementation is not affected by sanctions, then they are okay with supporting the agreement or with reviving the agreement under the the terms that have been negotiated. And that was that was certainly the impression that uh, their foreign minister Sergey Lavrov uh, was giving uh, today, uh, uh, just before we recorded. Uh, he was saying that he had been given assurances uh, that their role in implementing the JCPOA would not be interfered with. Uh, and of course, this this coincided with a visit from the Iranian foreign minister uh, Abdullahian, uh, who uh, was also, I think, optimistic about uh, Russian support for the agreement uh, on on terms that are acceptable to Tehran. So I think whatever hiccup there was involving the Russians seems to have been overcome. Uh, what one of the problems that we have is that the, there's so little transparency into these talks. And in fact, usually the only things we ever hear about the talks come from the Russian representative, Mikhail Oyanov, and he uh, has become very uh, quiet all of a sudden. And then he's not actually giving us many clues as to what the Russian government is thinking. And so uh, we, a lot of it has to be a, a bit of guesswork as to what they're, they're trying to accomplish. But, but as of this recording, it seems like the, the Russians aren't going to 
end up sabotaging the whole thing. Uh, but because this came at the 11th hour, right before they may have been ready to finalize an agreement, uh, it, it has slowed everything down again. It's, it's created a, another excuse for people who want to kill the deal uh, to try to kill it. Uh, although it's, it's been very funny to watch Iran Hawks sort of jump back and forth on this, where a few weeks ago they wanted to use Russian participation as a, a reason to pull out of the agreement or to pull out of the negotiations. Yeah. Uh, and now that the Russians may not be sabotaging it after all, uh, I, I assume they're going to go back to that line. But for, for a little while there, the Russians were the ones who were actually most likely to kill it, uh, which the Iran Hawks would have been happy with. Uh, so it's, it's right. all very uncertain as to what's going to, to transpire next. Um, but as, as we've said many times before, it really shouldn't have come to this. It shouldn't be March of 2022, and we still don't have the JCPOA back online. Uh, it's, it has been, I think, a, a serious mistake by the Biden administration to drag things out as long as they have. And, and it's made things so much more difficult because it's, it's allowed these other issues to crop up over time. That wouldn't wouldn't have right. been an issue if they had just gotten it done last summer, as they should have done. Well, let but me ask. That's you, that's water under the bridge. So yeah. You know. Well, let me ask you for the benefit of, of of listeners who might not be fully up to speed on the Iran nuclear deal and uh, where it's at now and why it's important that the United States uh, sign back on to this deal and uh, full enforcement continue. Can you just talk a little bit about why you believe that it is so important that the Biden administration sign back on this deal and that they, we move ahead uh, again uh, with the, the full enforcement? Well I, well, I think there, there are two principal benefits that come uh, to the United States uh, and, and its allies from the JCPOA. Uh, we can talk about what the Iranians get out of it in a minute, but the but basic benefits that we get out of it are it advances the cause of non-proliferation. It, it ensures that Iran's nuclear program remains peaceful for the foreseeable future, if not for all time, certainly for, for several decades into the future. Uh, and that this will be verified and confirmed by a very stringent inspections regime uh, that would not be possible outside of this agreement. Uh, so even though Iran is still part of the non-proliferation treaty, uh, they have signed on to a much more uh, thoroughgoing inspections regime as part of this agreement than any other member of the NPT ever has. And so it's it's really a, a landmark non-proliferation agreement uh, that, that should be supported just for that reason alone, uh, uh, because we, we can see we don't want to have more states that have nuclear weapons. Uh, we should try to limit the number of, of nuclear weapon states as much as possible, uh, because we see once states get those weapons, uh, it becomes much more difficult to deal with them. And of course, they can behave uh, much more aggressively, uh, as we see in the case of the Russians. So uh, you, you don't want to have a new nuclear crisis breaking out in the Middle East uh, in, in the near term, uh, which is what you would end up having if this agreement failed. And that's related to the second benefit to the U.S., which is that it removes one of the main pretexts for conflict with Iran uh, and, and simply resolves that problem uh, for the foreseeable future. Because as long as the Iranian nuclear program is unconstrained by something like the nuclear deal, uh, there will always be agitation for using 
force against them uh, for for sabotage operations, for trying to attack their facilities, and for going to war against Iran, uh, and ultimately even seeking regime change. And none of those scenarios is is good for the U.S. and for our security interests because we don't want to be in another Middle Eastern war, and we don't want to expose the forces that we have in the region to retaliation uh, that would inevitably follow from any attack on Iranian territory. So, uh, so non-proliferation and peace are are the chief benefits, and we should be uh, doing everything we can to to secure those. And so, I'm hopeful that they will, in fact, get this done, even if it only lasts for a couple of years, because we know that if there's a change in government in Washington, whatever agreement is secured will go out the window again in just a little while. And so, that's but you know that's a problem for tomorrow. Right, and uh, you you've raised the the specter of the next administration and what they would do. And one of the biggest fears uh, and, and demands that that Tehran has had up until now is that they want guarantees that a new president, a new administration won't come in and tear up the deal, just like you know Trump did. And just last week, Mike Pence, former vice president, flew uh, to Israel and spoke uh, to leaders there and spoke to media there and was quoted as saying, as soon as a new Republican administration comes in, we will get out of this deal. We will tear up this deal. And so basically just saying it right out there to Israel, which is obviously music to the ears of many Israelis in government there who don't like the deal and have been trying to sabotage it from the get-go for him to say that, which you know, that is another potential monkey wrench in these talks because Iran, without having an official guarantee uh, that this deal has no like actual salience beyond, you know, what, two year, two more years is less likely to sign on um, or make its own concessions. And I, I just find it very disturbing, but I'm not surprised either because the uh, Republican uh, opposition, the war hawks to this deal, have already said that they will fight it tooth and nail, uh, whether it be the, the current deal as it stands now or or in the future. Um, I, I would imagine that if the Russians and the U.S. had come to some agreement about sanctions uh, to bring the Russians back into the fold on the talks and allowing them to trade with Iran despite the new sanctions that have been put on Russia because of the invasion, that might be a further excuse for these um, anti-JCPOA hawks, which include Democrats, by the way, uh, to oppose it, what do you think? Uh, is this a, a, a more of a is this more of a po- poison uh, pill or just a hurdle? Well, I mean, the Russian involvement they'll, they'll always be trying to use Russian involvement uh, as an excuse now, uh, but th- there's really no way around the Russians being involved. Not only for technical reasons, because of what they need to do to in terms of taking out enriched uranium from Iran and helping them with civilian nuclear cooperation. Uh, but also because they're a permanent member of the Security Council, whether anybody likes it or not, that gives them a role in these talks uh, that you can't just blow off or, or ignore. And so I, I don't think that that objection uh, to negotiations with uh, the Iranians really has any merit. And and so I, right. I don't think it, it's going to end up mattering that much. Uh, the, the people that want to kill the deal will want to kill it for no matter what other parties are involved in it. Right. But and if so they I, I say, in that sense, 
I'm just thinking they could say, oh, so we're going to we're going to allow them to to trade with Iran, even though we we have punished them because of this um, criminal uh, invasion of Ukraine. We slap sanctions on them, but they're going to be able to get around those sanctions uh, with Iran and be able to um, import oil or whatever they're going to be able to do, continue the, the some trade relationship with them um, just you know, in exchange for their vote, you know, because that that's what I'm, I'm foreseeing that, you know, we have this, this very uh, strong anti-Putin movement in this country uh, because of the invasion. And if it comes out that a, a deal was struck to lift some of the sanctions on Russia that have been slapped on uh, for their vote on this JCPA, GCPOA um, agreement Will that will that serve as some sort of backlash? Is what I'm what I'm asking. Yeah. Well, I mean, may, I, I suppose uh, some some opponents of the deal will try to use that against uh, the negotiations, but no, I, I don't think, and I don't think the Biden administration is prepared to lift any existing sanctions on Russia to to achieve anything. Okay. I, what what from what I can see. All that the Biden administration is willing to commit to is that they're not going to sanction activities that Russia needs to engage in in order to be part of the implementation of the agreement. And I think the State Department said as much uh, in response to Lavrov's comments that they're they're not really promising anything beyond allowing the Russians to play their part. Okay. And so if the Russians are satisfied with that, and they may be, then uh, that ceases to be a real issue. Uh, for for anybody, so my, that that would be my impression. Now, will will Iran hawks distort that and try to turn it into some sort of giveaway or concession? Yeah, yeah. probably because because they distort all they kinds of things and and, <laughs> and pretend that they pretend that benefits to us are concessions to the Iranians. Uh, so they, you know, and on some level, you can't you can't worry about that because they're always going to try to twist things to suit their cause, but it's. Yeah, so, it's a it's a concern to keep in mind, but I I don't think it's going to be a, a major problem, provided that the U.S. and Iran can get over their other difficulties. And and now that I'm thinking about it, so Iran wouldn't be under, I guess Iran wouldn't be under the same sort of restrictions in terms of them doing business with Russia anyway, right? As has that have been imposed. Uh, by Europe, Europe and, and the U.S. and other countries that have voluntarily uh, imposed sanctions against Russia in the wake of the invasion, Iran would be free and clear to do whatever it wanted with Russia, right? If, if indeed, you know, the JCPO was passed and sanctions were lifted and they, you know, are they free to do it now? I mean, I guess I'm just confused on, on how, how much they are restricted now and how much would they be less restricted after a JCPOA was well, right. I mean, renewed. right now the, the, the main restrictions on them are, are related to getting any of their uh, transactions processed because they've basically been cut off from the, the global financial system. And so in, in principle, once those sanctions are lifted, they'll be able to do business with lots of other countries uh, Besides Russia, regardless of whatever's right. happening with Russia, they'll be able to get back more or less to business as usual with other trading partners. At least that's that's the promise of the sanctions relief. That's what's supposed to happen. Now we we saw even when the JCPOA was in place uh, that 
in practice, it was still very difficult to get people to to want to do business with Iran because there was a sort of overlooming, overriding fear that sanctions might return, and indeed they did. Uh, so it was it was very difficult to get people who might want to do business in Iran to actually do it. And then you saw uh, with uh, with U.S. reneging on it, you had lots of companies that had taken a risk and had actually started to make some investments pull out. And so those, and those companies aren't going to come back anytime soon because they know that it's there's too much uncertainty. And so sanctions relief benefits to Iran are going to be smaller this time around than they were before. And they weren't that great before, um, but but it will be better than what they're getting right now. Um, so it, yeah, in, in principle, it should allow them to to resume normal commerce. So I mean, I know that we're running out of time for this segment, but do you do you have confidence that this there will be some sort of agreement soon, or uh, what are your thoughts on the the future of I, the, these talks? Yeah, I guess I'm I'm more hopeful now based on what I've been hearing the last month or so compared to where we were maybe at the end of last year. Uh, it, it seems like they they may actually get something done. They they may be able to overcome those remaining hurdles, but there, it still comes down to the the political decisions on both sides to actually ma- make the final commitment. And I'm not sure that the Biden administration is really going to go to, to stick its neck out for this when all is said and done. Uh, the, they will. They could very easily find some excuse to say the Iranians haven't done enough to show their commitment to this agreement, and therefore we're going to back out. Um, and, and the fact that they keep signaling again and again that time is running out on these negotiations makes me think that they're looking for an escape hatch uh, if they can find one. Uh, I, I would love to be wrong about that. Maybe I am. Uh, it, it, things certainly look better than they did just a little while ago, but but it could still blow up and and uh, and fail. Our guest today is Ben Friedman. He is policy director at Defense Priorities and an adjunct lecturer at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. He's edited three books on defense policy and strategy and has published academic essays in International Security, Political Science Quarterly, Orbis, Foreign Affairs, and World Affairs. Welcome back to the show, Ben. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Uh, Last time you were on, we were talking about uh, the building crisis uh, over Ukraine, and now, unfortunately, we're here again to talk about the war in Ukraine. Um, we've seen a lot of people in the media and the foreign policy establishment agitating for U.S. escalation and direct intervention in the war. Uh, to his credit, Biden has rejected U.S. entry into the war for what I think are pretty sound reasons. Uh, but the pressure for war with Russia seems likely to increase as time goes by. How concerned are you that war could widen, whether by design or by accident, and what can be done to prevent that? I think that the Biden administration deserves a lot of uh, criticism for their actions in the run-up to the war, specifically on what they were willing to offer, not offer uh, Russia, and specifically refusing to uh, not uh, refusing to close off uh, the potential NATO membership for Ukraine. But uh, since the war, 
the invasion happened, uh, I, I've been fairly impressed with Biden uh, in terms of uh, not uh, getting sucked into too much escalatory behavior. I mean, I am personally worried that armed shipments, uh, even if they haven't antagonized Russia to this point, will at some point. And uh, I, I imagine that they will keep their attacks on uh, shipments on the Ukrainian side of the Ukrainian-Polish border uh, and not spark a NATO uh, reaction. But I think that's a potential flashpoint for escalation. And it, it could be that just the accumulation of sanctions and the uh, frustration, uh, if it continues uh, in, in the Kremlin about failing to achieve their objectives, might lead them to sort of get desperate and widen the war. Although I think since that would almost certainly hurt their chances of winning, they'll, they'll probably avoid that. So uh, I think, I don't think that there's anything happening now that is likely to escalate uh, the conflict to World War III or something, but uh, people are right to be nervous. And, uh, you know, I didn't think that the uh, foreign policy establishment of the war party as the title of this podcast puts it, uh, would be responsible and uh, thoughtful about uh, keeping the United out of uh, this war. But nonetheless, I've been impressed uh, by uh, the thoughtlessness and heedless rush towards escalation coming from some quarters of Washington, D.C., happily not really the Biden administration, but, you know, people calling for no-fly zones and, and denouncing U.S. fecklessness for not uh, doing even more. I mean, reasonable people, I think, could disagree about how risky it is to transfer MiGs from Poland, but uh, the fear that it, it could uh, precipitate a wider war seems highly valid to me. And uh, it's not clear at all that the military benefit to Ukraine is worth the the risk, but you know, you have Elliot Cohen in the Atlantic calling it not just wrong to think that it will uh, escalate, but saying it's preposterous to even bring that up. So, um, the you know, the the people who I thought would be irresponsible in their policy prescriptions have been uh, impressively irresponsible, and so a bit surprising in their extremity in that regard. Sure. Well, and, and specifically on the the MIG issue, I've noticed a lot of people seem to just be taking the Ukrainian government's line. That they because they want them they should get them, uh, regardless of whether they're they're even useful to them. Uh, that that was the, basically the line that Senate Republicans took uh, just a few days ago, uh, where essentially they they didn't think it mattered that our government thought it would be useless or, or not very useful to send them, and it would be too risky. Uh, they said, oh well, the Ukrainians want them, so that's all that matters. Uh, and I, I've seen this this line coming out of the Ukrainian government where they keep saying, close the skies, close the skies. Uh, when, when the principal threat to Ukrainian forces and Ukrainian civilians is not mainly coming from the skies, and so it's it's strange that people have latched onto these options that are that are not even really relevant to the immediate problems that they're facing. Um, how much do you think the the Ukrainian government's advocacy for these positions are are driving the advocacy for it in Washington? Certainly, uh, Ukrainian, Ukraine's advocacy is driving a fair amount of support for these things in Washington. I mean, they called for a no-fly zone. A bunch of people immediately called for a no-fly zone. Uh, I'm not sure what the sort of causal ordering is there, but, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty linked. And uh, I, it's obvious that, you know, Ukraine is in a terrible situation. They were in a terrible situation before the war, as people like us were pointing out, saying, you know, they need to 
relying on the West is, seems like a very bad strategy. And unfortunately, I think that position was vindicated. But uh, now, you know, they're in a terrible situation. Uh, their country is being overrun or uh, they're fighting better than most people thought. But um, the balance of power severely favors uh, Russia. So, uh, of course, they want help from uh, the West. They want help from NATO. They want help from the United States. They want all the help they can get. And uh, they probably even want symbolic kind of help that will just somehow kind of enmesh uh, the United States and NATO in the conflict in some way. And they might have a kind of theory that that will lead to more useful uh, forms of help. So uh, it's not surprising that you know people's ideological or moral sympathy for them uh, causes uh, you know uh, support for all these measures. But you have to keep in mind that their whole strategy, it appears, uh, is predicated on getting, uh, or at least it was, on getting uh, the United States pulled into the war in a greater way. So you have to, including their information that they're putting out there. So you have to take everything that's coming out of there with a grain of salt. And, you know, it gets harder and harder as the war goes on to sort of be skeptical about uh, everything the Ukrainians say because they're the victims and everybody's on their side. And if you know, if you say, well, maybe that particular piece of information is propaganda designed to pull at heartstrings in a situation that's bad enough, just being honest about it, uh, then people call you a Putin apologist and you know say you're a monster and everything. So, uh, you know, which I think you can put up with to a degree, but it, you know, it's 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 like a lot of wars. It's creating a kind of. Uh, even ones we're not in, you know, the, the sort of walls come crashing down around what's kind of normatively acceptable speech and, you know, stuff that was maybe tolerable before now gets you branded as some kind of uh, apologist or traitor, which, you know, I think a lot of people can live with, but it's kind of unpleasant to be yelled at on Twitter and things like that. Um, on, on the other end, looking at ways to, to move away from escalation towards, towards de-escalation, a diplomatic compromise still seems the best way to halt the fighting and limit the devastation of the war. Uh, but there is a large constituency in Washington dead set against compromise. Right? There, there are a lot of people that I've seen making the argument that essentially this, most of the sanctions should remain in place either forever or as long as Putin is in power, regardless of what Russia does or doesn't do in Ukraine. And, and that seems like a you're, you're putting them putting things on a permanent uh, economic war footing uh, for for decades to come in that case. Uh, do you think the Biden administration could deliver on sanctions relief as part of a comprehensive peace agreement, if if one could be negotiated, uh, to end the war under current political conditions? They could, uh, and they ought to, and I don't know if they will. I mean, we, you know, the Biden administration, uh, I think, has said uh, somewhere or other that, that they would relax sanctions or most, if not all of them, in the event that Russia pulled out. But I think they should be way more clear uh, and forthright about that. And it, I mean, you, as part of a peace negotiation, of course, it would be useful for the Biden administration to be part of that and say, uh, you know, in the event the war ends and Russian forces withdraw, uh, we're going to uh, get rid of all these sanctions since the war started. But uh, even absent being part of a peace negotiation, they should just say that because uh, if you don't, you give Russia the impression that, uh, or you may give Russia, Putin, the impression that uh, no matter what they do, we're going to keep these sanctions in place. And uh, if you listen to a lot of the United States Congress, that's not an unreasonable uh, 
conclusion to reach. And so uh, why should they do anything to comply with the stated aim of the sanctions and pull out of the war uh, when the sanctions are really aimed at regime change or whatever the, the macro objective is uh, that, that appears to be, you know, if you listen to Mitt Romney and all these people in, in the Congress. So you're screwing up uh, the incentive to end the war with your dreams of regime change. And that, that's dangerous to, to say the least. So, uh, I you know, I think now... Uh, Ukraine, Zelensky has been saying, you know, we, we're basically saying we're ready to give up on uh, our bid for NATO membership. Uh, and we're maybe heading towards a situation where a lot of people in the United States who 10 minutes ago were saying uh, in response to people like us who said, well, maybe neutrality would be a good deal for Ukraine to avoid getting invaded. It's, well, they have agency. And now they're going to be saying uh, Ukrainians, yeah, they have agency, but, uh, you know, they really need to keep fighting the Russians. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're not going to say out loud that we're doing something that's not pro-Ukraine. But I think there's a fair number of people who, who want the war to continue because it's bashing Russia and uh, weaken it and uh, won't come out and say uh, that they're using Ukraine as a bleeding ground for uh, Russia. But I think, you know, their policy preferences more or less uh, say that that's what they want. And uh, so they we, we might get a bunch of people in Washington, D.C. who are much more pro-war than the leadership in Kiev and get this weird dichotomy where they're saying, here's here's, you know, we think we want to sign up for a peace deal. And people in D.C. are saying not so fast. Hi, Ben. Thanks for, for coming on the show. It's great to see you again and hear you again on these issues. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about mission creep. I saw a piece in the, the Associated uh, Press on Tuesday talking about the prospect of a bigger U.S. military footprint in Europe uh, as a result of everything we're seeing today. And, you know, as you know, a reporter that's been covering these issues for the last couple decades, I see how this story may end. You know, this will be fodder for Congress to ask for and expect and get, you know, bigger military budgets because of we need this, this, this ramp up, this, uh, you know, confrontational uh, posture with Russia now to sustain beyond whatever happens in the near term in Ukraine. And I'm looking at a quote uh, from Alexander Bershbaugh, who is a former U.S. ambassador to Russia and former deputy secretary general of NATO, saying we are in a new era of sustained confrontation with Russia, arguing the United States with the allies will need to establish a, quote, more muscular stance to deal with a more threatening Russia. I mean, is this a, a truly a gift to the military industrial complex what's happening now? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the, the uh, U.S. reaction to this, which is not deeply surprising, is is useful for defense contractors and you know congressional districts who rely on defense contractors, and hence yeah, the military-industrial complex. Uh, I, I I have uh, written an op-ed with Justin Logan that hopefully will be out when people are listening to this podcast somewhere that makes this the argument that, uh, in fact, the, the war uh, thus far, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, has shown not that the United States needs to do more uh, in Europe, uh, but that we could do less. I mean, prior to the war, you had a situation where the big EU powers had a massive advantage vis-a-vis -vis Russia in aggregate military spending, even if you adjust for purchasing power parity, you know, um, European NATO 
that is minus the United States uh, and Canada has, I think, a four to one advantage in military spending. That's after PPP adjustments. It's like 10 to one if you don't make a purchasing power adjustment. Uh, they have a massive advantage uh, or at least a large advantage, hundreds of thousands uh, in manpower, military manpower uh, and uh, much much, much larger GDP, which is something they can tap into to do more. And that's exactly what they've done. Uh, that what we've seen as a result of this invasion, the balance of power has gone more into the European favor because uh, Germany is spending more. They're say, they say on their military, they're finally going to spend uh, 2%, they say, and uh, of their GDP. And they're going to uh, ramp up, you know, they have this one-time uh, military spending increase, something like 100 billion. Poland's going to spend more money. I think we're going to see, as we did after, in a limited way, after the Crimea seizure in 2014, an increase in European defense spending almost across the board. States balance power, something we learn uh, as undergraduates in international relations, and we're seeing that. And uh, in the meantime, the Russian military is getting dashed on the rocks. I mean, they, they got... They've, it's unclear, there's different estimates of how many casualties they've taken, maybe 7,000, 8,000 so far. Uh, they have, uh, you know, been sanctioned uh, to the Jesus, which is going to hurt their ability to generate uh, military power in the near term or long term, certainly. Uh, they're uh, losing combat equipment and they've shown that they can't fight very well against a halfway competent opponent. They can't do combined arms warfare particularly well. They can't do close air support particularly well. They can't uh, generate uh, air power to support their ground operations, uh, and, which requires suppressing the Ukrainian uh, air defenses, which everybody thought would take them about 24 hours and they haven't done it in three weeks. So um, the whole lesson is that the Russians aren't that mighty and the Europeans are doing more. So the United States doesn't need to be sending more troops as we are to Europe and uh, jacking up defense spending by to $780 billion on largely on the back of the idea that we need to be doing more about Russia somehow. But of course, that's what we're getting. And it's it's unsurprising. But, uh, you know, it, 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 it it's. I think a tragic misuse of resources when we have so many other uses for it. And it doesn't, to say we shouldn't do that doesn't require thinking that, you know, Putin's a nice person or uh, their invasion of Ukraine isn't a big deal. It's just looking at the balance of power and saying, look, the, the Europeans can handle it. The, the Russians aren't going beyond Ukraine. They can't even get through Ukraine easily. Uh, so they, they've shown uh, that they're stuck in the mud, not that they're this mighty, you know, force like the, the Germans before World War II or the Napoleonic France or something like that. I wonder what this will do to uh, the defense budget conversation and debate and whether or not this will detract any attention from our China strategy, which has, you know, up until now been very hawkish. And there have been a lot of people in Washington saying, you know, we should spend less time talking and less money uh, in the European theater and shift it over to China where the real threat is, or will there be a debate about trying to do both? You know, like we, we've talked about this, I, I believe on the show before, and I know Dan has written about this, about there is a debate within the hawkish realm about whether or not we can, we can, we can, we can prepare for a two front war. And I, and I almost feel like, you know, Washington is gearing up uh, to like, you know, have this sort of sustained posture 
in Europe. But at the same time, there's going to be plenty of people saying, but wait, we can't keep our eye off the, the China threat. Yeah, I think that the debate was was breaking out uh, before the war in you know, various op-eds and, you know, yeah. uh, pretty, pretty, you know, hawkish people uh, were coming out and saying, look, you know, we, we can't really deal with this Russian thing in, in a meaningful way. You know, we got to just try to settle this and get our focus on Asia. Uh, but, you know, if we're going to increase defense spending by, you know, just sort of by printing another $40 billion, you know, for the next fiscal year, and there's no kind of restraint on the top line, those debates will be suppressed. You know, and that's been the case for a long time that, uh, you know, I, for example, in 2012, 13, when we had the Budget Control Act, you had this kind of outbreak of uh, strategic thinking. Like people were arguing about, uh, well, we can't have so many forces in the Middle East uh, because we need them for Asia, you know, the Asia pivot, which never really happened, which I think is a good thing. But, uh, you know, we need them to pivot to Asia and, or, you know, something else. Uh, and there's a bit of, you know, uh, I, the idea occurs to people that somebody else's monster du jour is a threat to theirs. But uh, if you can just increase the budget and all ships rise, <laughs> then uh, it's, it's or, you know, a rising tide rates, whatever the expression is. Everybody wins together and you have a quiet uh, quietude uh, with those debates where people, you know, it doesn't really go away, but uh, the, you know, the, the debates aren't that sharp. So top line uh, suppression is, is uh, or, you know, keeping the top line fixed is, I think, what really helps with that. And, and also some other kind of moves we can make to say, you know, we're not going to have the same fixed budget uh, year by year for the military services, they can fight it out a little bit because then you kind of get something happening where the, the Navy says, well, China's the big threat. And the Army says Russia's the big threat because of the different geography of those of uh, Europe and Asia. And that's kind of useful, arguably, uh, to have a better debate around Washington, D.C. But uh, I, th I think, unfortunately, that we're not having kind of an out outbreak of a more robust free marketplace of ideas. We're having an outpouring of uh, we just have to do everything everywhere for the moment, at least. We'll see what happens in a few months or years. Right. And one of the areas that we're seeing, uh, I think, a, a collapse in, in a debate is a debate over the use of sanctions, where I think before the invasion, there was a, a growing idea that broad sanctions were frequently useless or, or causing more harm than, than uh, doing more harm than good. Uh, now, we're resorting to full-on economic war again on a much larger scale, uh, and and there do, there does seem to be a lot of people dissenting against that, uh, and, and it's understandable because of what the Russians have done. Uh, but the but the economic war that we're trying against the Russians is bigger than anything that we've attempted with sanctions in the post World War II era, um, and it, it promises to to do quite a bit of damage to the, the global economy as well. How damaging uh, do you think the economic war will be? Uh, to the U.S. And, and to the world as a whole? Well, I, I mean, I, I'll say first, it's not really my area of expertise. I'm not an economist, but uh, I've been surprised at, at the willingness of uh, the United States, uh, the Biden administration, and particularly Europe to uh, kind of go to the mattresses on sanctions and implement much more intense sanctions on Russia, uh, 
than there's any precedent for, largely because I didn't think Germany, for instance, would be willing to screw up its own economy so badly. I didn't think the United States uh, would risk uh, increasing energy prices at a time when, you know, that's such a hot button political issue and the midterm elections coming up, uh, you know, exactly. I mean, to be fair, we didn't, the, the real Russian uh, energy sales that are important are not to the United States, they're to Europe. And uh, those continue in large parts, but still you know, the Biden administration is setting itself up to be at least blamed for higher gas prices, uh, which seems uh, difficult politically. But uh, so uh, I think, this war is, is going to cause uh, increased inflation and uh, and economic hardship, particularly in Europe, which is heavily exposed to the Russian economy. Uh, and and so uh, it's it's. And meanwhile, it's unclear if the sanctions will do a lick of good uh, in terms of uh, suppressing the Russian war effort. Maybe. It's, it goes on the scale and the Russians are, you know, there's some conversation in the Kremlin where the people who are against the war, who seem to be numerous uh, outside of Putin, uh, are saying, look, this is, you know, this is just piling on. And it's sort of like a 60-40 decision where they're saying uh, this is one more reason that we should try to wrap this up and, and uh, cut, a, cut a deal to end the war. But historically, that's not really what happens. And sanctions tend to uh, create, you know, sort of an outbreak of nationalism and resentment in the sanctioned uh, country, and uh, the attempt to coerce them and, and to sort of humiliate them uh, using sanctions and publicly say that we back them down tends to be counterproductive. So I don't, I'm not sure exactly what way this will go, but it, you know, it is notable that uh, before all these sanctions came down, there was this sort of weird consensus where. I didn't see a lot of people saying the sanction would work. In fact, almost everyone said, well, it probably won't work. And then almost everybody agreed we were going to, we should do it anyway. Uh, and and it, it, part of it is just, that it is very hard politically to say, even for people like me who work at a think tank, when there's so much outrage at what Russia's done, understandably to say, yeah, you don't even put sanction them. It's not going to do any good. And it's just going to, you know, make matters worse for a bunch of other people, Russian citizens, but even people around the world who do business with them. It's just going to increase energy prices. Uh, if you sanction energy uh, and uh, that's, you know, not worth it. It's very difficult in this current environment to make that argument and have people say, you know, that you don't want to do anything about this Russian invasion. So you wind up saying, even though you're not a politician, well, I guess we might as well sanction a little without any kind of regard for whether it works. It's a tough, tough policy issue. Well, thanks, Ben. We appreciate you coming on. And uh, we're out of time for this episode, but we look forward to having you back again uh, uh, sometime soon. Yeah, good to talk to you guys. Appreciate being here. Thanks, Ben. Take care. Bye. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.